going to start reading in verse 12. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God and Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let's pray one more time. Gracious and heavenly Father, give aid to your people to hear your word spoken, not by me, but by the voice of Christ, that your spirit would illumine this passage, shed its light upon our heart, uh, to grow us, to sanctify us, and to look ever more to your son's coming, our ultimate future, our ultimate hope. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, today, the ride is over. We are closing out First Thessalonians. And I admit as I do usually after the end of every book I preach through, I am more glad we went through it than I initially thought I would be by the time I got done with it. Um, the lessons we've learned in Thessalonians, First Thessalonians, have been concrete, uh, absolute. The, the Christian virtues of faith, hope, and love have been there throughout the whole letter. The, the way Paul has pastorally spoken to the Thessalonians, calling himself um, a father to them, a mother to them, how he has exemplified for their faith, looking to Christ coming as the ultimate hope for all mankind. He talked about living a life pleasing to God and walking in holiness, having true piety before the Lord. And of course, he spent quite a bit of time talking about the coming of the Lord, the glorious day of the Lord when he will come and he will usher in the new heavens and the new earth and the former things being no longer remembered, forgotten, new things coming. And so we come to this final section. You know, Paul's conclusions, uh, sometimes you think 
he just has to fulfill some word count. And he's just writing these last greetings and last words uh, because there's nothing else to talk about. Other letters like this, he's actually almost trying to cram in every little thing he can before he gets done writing. And it's almost fitting he closes the letter like this because it's, it's almost like a verbal illustration of how he left personally from Thessalonica. Remember, he, him and Paul, him and Timothy and Silas came to Thessalonica after, after Philippi and they started preaching. People started getting saved. Uh, mayhem broke out essentially, riot broke out and they had to leave town only weeks after getting there. And he, he didn't really have time to spend with them. He was hastened and, and rushed out of town because of the, the ruckus and the, the chaos that was going on there. And as he hastened out of town, we have this conclusion where he's just like pinning every last little thing like, okay, do this, rejoice always, you know, respect your elders, <laughs> you know, Consider your Lord. Uh, treat each other this way. And remember, above all things, the Lord's coming back. And he's going to complete the salvation he started in you. That day we came to Thessalonica. And, and that's really what he, he wraps up with in verse 23. When he has this prayer, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. He is he is praying for something he's been talking about the whole letter. He wants the Thessalonians to know, yes, you have Christ, but your salvation is far from complete. You, you've certainly been justified in the Lord. You've been set apart and sanctified in the Lord, and, and you are being sanctified still. But there is much to be done still for you to reach glory, for your sanctification to be complete your whole soul and spirit and body to be presented blameless. Blameless, without spot, sin, stain, anything before the Lord. I think the question comes here, what, what do all these laws and commands he gave have to do with his final summary statement in, in verse 23. He clearly wants them to know that the God of peace will sanctify them. And then he also tells them, hey, respect those who labor over you, admonish the idol, be kind to one another, pray always, rejoice always, and so forth. What does the prayer have to do with the laws, the, the commands he's giving. Well, it's clear in verse 23, what he wants them to know is that they will one day be made whole. They will be made complete. Their sanctification will have a termination and that termination for their growing and uh, growing in godliness is glory. Sanctification all goes towards being glorified. And so we have there that he himself will sanctify you completely. 
You have the, the word there, your whole, your whole spirit and soul and body will be kept blameless. And then you have this attribution, the God of peace. Typically, when we think of the God of peace, peace, we think of maybe some state of calm in our heart or the presence of the absence of hostility, the presence of peace, the presence of just there's no war. There's no battle going on. And while there are various ways we can take the word peace and be quite legitimate, there is a very specific way Paul is talking about peace here. And when he talks about peace in this context, he is talking about the final eschatological, the final in time salvation of the Christian made whole. That, that's what the peace Paul's talking about is referring to. It's not just a state of calm, although it, there is peace in the Christian life. It is a fruit of the Spirit. But as he has been thinking about Christ's coming, he's now thinking about Christ's coming to perfectly make you whole again. We're all broken and <laughs> Monty Dumpties. <laughs> We've all fallen. And we need to be put back together and made whole. And that's what the peace means. It surely means calm. It surely means no hostility with God. But actually, this concept of peace, even going back to Paul using it as a Jew, is a wholeness. We are not made whole yet. We have many rich spiritual blessings in Christ, but we're not whole. We're not done. And so, as it says in the bulletin, the, the title of the message, really just, Christ is making people of peace. He's not, yes, he's making people who are calm and, and, and under self-control, but he's making you whole again. He's putting you back together. And he's sanctifying you and tempering the fleshly zeal to be sanctified zeal, giving you self-control. And so that's what we want to talk about today, being made whole again. He has, Christ has come, or excuse me, Christ has, he's come in the flesh and he's been risen from the dead and he has started his, his new work, his new creation, but the work's not done yet. And so how do people of peace live in light of Christ's coming? Well, there are basically three categories he gives here. There's how Christians live in respect to their spiritual superiors. I mean, I'll get the elephant out of the room in a way in a minute, but those who labor among the congregation and are over and admonish Christians, ministers, pastors, he says, this is how you need to relate to them. He also tells them, this is how you relate to each other. Admonish, encourage, help, be patient, do good to everyone. And then he says, this is how you need to relate to God himself. Rejoice, pray, give thanks, and so forth and so on. So we're going to walk through this here. First off, how Christians ought to respect their spiritual leaders. It's just in the passage I'm not picking it. 
I have prayed multiple times not to either make too light of it, not to guilt trip you, or to overburden it, but here's the fact of the matter. Paul says, brothers, respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So, there are, uh, there are many reasons pastors don't have respect. Uh, there's a long list. There's a long, own, my own personal list on, on why I would not be respected, but it's not a personal thing, as you see here. He says, do so because of their work. It wasn't that long ago when pastors were actually respected in the town. Uh, they were maybe the most knowledgeable, educated people in the town. They not only knew their own native language well, but they were scholarly in Greek and Hebrew. They wrote treatises in Latin, and they probably also knew French or German. And they were very, very well-trained. They knew the social issues of the day, and they had the respect of the town. And it is no... <laughs> it's fairly obviously that... that, that that view has largely gone by the wayside, right? Uh, sometimes we shoot ourselves in our own foot. But nevertheless, pastors, Paul says, should be respected. But they shouldn't be respected because of their likableness or their personality, but because of their work. Respect those who labor among you. And down in verse 13, because of their work. So, he says here, respect and esteem them very highly. I mean, yeah, I'm just going to go through this and, yeah. But, no, I know, you, you guys are like overly kind to me. But, so, one thing is, he says, respect them because of their labor. And because they're over you and because they admonish you. So there's work to be done. There's, there's a hard work. The, the, the spiritual, physical, mental, and emotional expense, expense that ministers have on behalf of the people is heavy. And it's not just because people are difficult. It's because the work is hard. But it is a true labor. Paul would... Paul often talks about ministry being laborious. And I don't mean laborious as in like, oh my goodness, this is so bad. But laborious in it, it is hard work. It is a toil. As he would say in Colossians, he says, we want to present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, God's energy, that he powerfully works in me. So Paul tells the Colossians, he'll talk about it here in Thessalonians. The ministry is a labor. It is a work. And it's hard. But it's, it's not, Paul often says, it's not hard because people are difficult. Even though we can all be very challenging people and stubborn it's hard because the impossible task 
to present someone pure to Christ. That is on the heart of any genuine minister. That one day you will stand before the Lord. And I will give an account of my time in your life. Yeah, we all, we're all nitpicky and we're challenging. We have our own idiosyncrasies and things. But it's this goal of presenting someone pure as a virgin bride before Christ that makes the work hard. Impossible. It's impossible. Without the Spirit, with the Spirit, The difficulty, the burden is heavy. And so he says, listen, Thessalonians, give him some respect. They are over you. Now, they are not over you in a way in which they wield, the ministers wield a guilt trip or some heavy burden over the sheep battering them to get them into submission or manipulating the sheep to get them into where they need to go. No, ministers are over others in the sense of we are spiritual oversight, not in all matters of life, spiritual oversight. And the minister uses his oversight not by force, but by appeal. The minister would appeal in love, mercifully, compassionately, for the Christian to do what ought to be done, not just simply say like a frustrated parent does to a child, just go do it. (laughs) It's not Nike. Just go do it. Just do it. No, it's like, why why don't you want to do this? This is the right thing to do. This is leaving a blight on your life and the church. This is sin, or, or you don't know the error of your ways. This is the path of folly. Please don't go down that way. It's appeal. It's encouragement. It's wisdom. And sometimes, yes, there it is. There is admonishment. But the oversight never is to be one of force and harshness. But as a shepherd would a sheep. Let me, let me come along you. You know, you're way off here. There's wolves over there. <laughs> Stay over here. And, and so there's admonishment. Warning. And he, and he says, Paul does, respect these ministers and esteem them highly in love. And I, I'm glad he added the second part because we can all give a kind of a nod of respect. But esteem them highly in love. The congregation should love their pastor. If you're in a church where you don't love your pastor, talk with your pastor. Or have him say to you, "Uh, this isn't working. There's something in between us. Either the way you've done something, sir, or ma'am, there's something here. But 
Ideally, the people of peace, Christians, should esteem their pastor in love because of their work. And sure, some pastors are just more likable than others. But it's, it's not the personality, the, the, the warmth necessarily, but it's because of the labor. Like, here it is. Do you care about your own soul? If you care about your own soul, you would give some regard to the man who is in charge of your soul. In, in charge to a degree. You will most like you, you will definitely be held accountable for your own behavior, for your own life. But so will your minister. And whether he was too quiet or too loud or whatever he was when he was over you. So, and of course, you know, in, in our day, in, in our world, not in Christ's world, but in our world, we'd say, oh, respect the office. I don't really respect the guy. That doesn't, that doesn't fly in Jesus' kingdom. Because the man and the office are the same. If a man's not fit for the office, he, should, he, he needs to leave the office. But if he's qualified for the office, then he's qualified for respect and being highly esteemed. But this is, this is, the, this is the peace Jesus would have in his kingdom. People, Jesus says, my people, I want you to respect the, the under shepherds I put under you, put over you. Yes, they're full of inadequacies, many flaws, their own sins. Yes. But I put them there, Jesus says. And as it is with most things in our life, our complaining isn't just this. Our complaining is ultimately, but God, you didn't do this. Or I don't like Pastor Kyle or whatever. So, so that's the first thing. We'll, we'll, we'll get the awkwardness out of the way. Christians are to respect and honor those who are over them in the Lord. Christians are also supposed to give custom-made care to one another. Tailor-made ministry, prayer, and care for one another. You see in verse 14, excuse me, I'm going to read at the end of verse 13, because I think be at peace among yourselves goes probably with the following, not with the leadership, although either one would work. It's actually, either one is true, but be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone for evil, evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. It's a classic text for counseling, a classic text for counseling ministry, one another ministry, cross-pollination ministry. You guys are serving one another, praying for, ministering to one another. And Paul says, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. It isn't a one-caliber bullet for any game. (laughs) It isn't just one simple equation for all other problems. But just as there are unique problems, there are unique solutions. So he says, there, he gives three categories, not an exhaustive list by any means, but he's not alone, Paul, in saying, hey, here's a, here's a bunch of categories to think about 
Jesus would say, there are four categories of people who are going to listen to the word. And they're all going to respond differently, kind of. But ultimately, only one is really going to be a true hearer of the word. In our day, we might just say there's believers and non-believers. A Puritan preacher, William Perkins, when he would prepare messages, he said, there are, there are seven kinds of people I'm probably going to be preaching to. And Paul says, listen, they are, they are a varied lot, Thessalonians. You are a varied lot of people. And so apply the right remedy to the certain problem. So admonish the idol. Admonish the idol. Some of your translations might say idol. Some of them might say um, unruly. Unruly is probably more close to, closer to what we are, should think about. It's not just talking about those who are lazy and like couch potatoes, but the idol in obedience. Those who are idle and not obeying and walking in line with the Lord. They're unruly. They're disobedient. They have a persistence in or a habit of disobedience. He says, to them who know better, sternly warn them. Admonish. Sternly warn them. Let them know their ways are full of error, folly, and spiritual destruction. There is a way that seems right to, its man, to a man. And that way ends in death. But come along, come to them and admonish them. The other group, he says, they're faint-hearted. And, and you don't bring more frustration to someone who's already broken down. Those who are disobedient, unruly, likely proud, humble them. Those who are already low, encourage them. Cheer them up. Console them. They are already discouraged, faint-hearted by their own sense of failure, by their own sense of sin in their life. They need to be encouraged. Not beaten over the head and say, well, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, so just like get over it. That's not, that, 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 that's not loving. <laughs> it's not only important of what we say, but how we say it. Like apples of gold in a setting of silver. It matters, the timeliness of what we say. And he also says, help the weak. This is another positive correction. So he had the negative correction of admonishing the idol. And then two positive corrections of encourage the faint-hearted and, and help the weak. The weak are those who it might be physically weak, maybe, maybe widows of the day, maybe those who are physically unable to get by. Most likely, he's talking spiritually. Those who are infantile in their faith, or spiritually weak and can't bear their own burdens. Bear their burdens. And thus fulfill the law of Christ. Help the weak. 
give them spiritual crutches. Don't sweep kick their leg because they're weak. (laughs) Martin Luther, he's known, of course, as being a a powerful preacher and and a scholar, linguist. My goodness. Um, He had a very effective counseling ministry. And he broke down his parishioners, those under his care, in, in two ways. He says there are sinners and there are sufferers. And of course they overlap, right? Sin makes us to suffer. But generally speaking, someone that you're going to deal with because of their unique situation, particular today's situation, is going to be more inclined to be either a sinner in this context or a sufferer. And he says to the, to the sinners, you nutheteo them. You admonish them. You warn them. Nutheteo, warn sternly. It's about sin. There needs to be rebuke. There needs to be correction. There needs to be warning. That is wrong and offense to God. But to the sufferer, you don't nutheteo. You parakaleo them. You encourage them. It's very, very practical. We are all at various times either sinners or sufferers or, or at the same moment both. But we are most likely in a given situation either at fault because we've sinned against the Lord and, and against others and something we've done or said and we need to be rightly corrected and rebuked and admonished. But at other times we're we're dealing with somebody else's sin and we are suffering. And, and Paul says, maybe Luther got it from here. Don't confuse them, but, but listen, listen some more, listen some more, and then admonish if they're unruly, encourage if they're low, help. And in all of them, be patient. And all of them, be patient with him. It's like he would say the same thing to Timothy. You know, preach the word, in season, out of season. Do this, reprove, reprove, correct, teach, train. Be patient in all of your teaching. <laughs> It might be easy, depending on your personality and how God has made you, it might be easy for you to encourage the faint-hearted. And the faint-hearted, you're just really patient with, oh, you're naturally sympathetic. We even got to be patient with those who are unruly. Patient isn't just um, whether how I want to say something or whether I want to give a nice word or a stern word. No, patient would also be, be patient in your admonishment. How often do you or I hear correction and shape up right then? No, we need repeated correction. Kyle, I, I told you, like my parents would tell God, once, I told you one thousand times. <laughs> but he says, this, this, is what makes, this is what makes for peace. In Christ's world, people living in peace with one another, not necessarily a peace of no hostility, although that is true, but a peace of 
putting each other together and being used by the Lord to make one whole again. That's not found in the world. The world, the motto might be, you know, just fend for yourself. The the motto in the world, it, it might be that there's some sense of love or humanitarian spirit to help one another, but they don't have the means. The scripture is sufficient for every single problem you will ever encounter. Yeah, it it may not touch ADHD the same as it does bitterness, but the word of life has words of life. And, and, And you all have a copy. You all have a copy. We're all working with the same syllabus. <laughs> so, this is, there's one source. The world doesn't have this source. Well, they've rejected the source, but so. And, and this is our this is our prescription from the great physician: how to admonish, encourage, and help each other, and do good for one another. Obviously, he says there: repay no one evil for evil. That's straight out of Jesus' own teaching. Seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Now, those are the first two categories. One, uh, be at peace or respect your spiritual leaders. Two, give tailor-made ministry to each other. And then three, respond to God appropriately. There's always an appropriateness in God's kingdom. The appropriate behavior to the spiritual leaders is to give them respect. The appropriate love for each other is to give the proper care for the proper problem. And then in God, God has manifested in way, his, his himself in various ways. And the various ways warrant various responses. That's just, that's just another way of saying what is shorthand called the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is love, serve, worship, pray, honor, obey the Lord as how he has revealed himself. So he says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks, don't quench the spirit, don't despise prophecies, test everything, and abstain, flee from every form of evil. So these are all in the category of how do I live before God? How do I live before my pastor? How do I live before my fellow brothers and sisters? And how do I live most importantly before God? And the, 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 the general picture of 16 to 22 is that the Christian has a dynamic relationship with his or her Lord so that there is exchange and interaction and dialogue even in a way in which we would say we are walking in step with the Spirit. We're walking hand in hand as he leads us to the kingdom. It is no static, okay, read my Bible, say my prayers, and I know it's cliche, but check the box and move on. No, we are completely reliant and dependent upon the Lord for every second of our life. So rejoice. Rejoice always. He has done such good to us, not only in giving us a place to worship, not only in giving us a wonderful town to live in, friends, family, loved ones, 
But he has shed abroad his own love in our hearts through Christ and with the abiding spirit. And with that gospel understanding, understanding of the gospel, have joy. Rejoice. It's funny, in, in 17, it says pray without ceasing, and the, and the question inevitably comes up, like, do I, do I pray all day? How, how does that work without ceasing? It's the same thing with 16. Rejoice always. The, the, the general orientation of my life should be joy in the Lord. Happiness. Gladness because of the gospel in my life. We should be happy people, not curmudgeons. But we should rejoice. And we should pray without ceasing. As God has proven himself faithful to give you the gospel, give you life, time and time again, the Christian is persuaded in every single circumstance I have a reason to pray. I have a very valid reason to talk to my God. Now, if just for a second, take from the word pray, take out the concept of supplication. Take out the concept of request. And I'm going to request something from you, God, even though that's inherently part of prayer. But if I could insert prayer, uh, insert a word instead of prayer without ceasing, it would be, Talk with your Lord. Commune with your Lord always. May He always be on your mind. When there is a, when there is a temptation of, should I do X or Y? Lord, help me. Or I got to go discipline my child. Lord, help me. Or I got to have this hard conversation. Help me. Or I got to... I got to carry my world. I'm retired. I'm financially well off. I don't know if I want to go hunt, travel, do whatever. But still, Lord, direct me. Pray without ceasing. Be constantly in communication with your Lord. We're also told to give thanks in all circumstances. The Christian, having seen the the faithfulness of God in giving us the gospel, making us to be born again in Christ, answering prayer, being faithful to us. As he says in verse 24, he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Give thanks in all circumstances. Give thanks for the valley days and give thanks for the mountain days. Give thanks for hard days and good days. Give thanks in all circumstances. Now that's humbling. That's humbling because circumstances have a way of not being circumstantial, but actually defining. I'm going through X, Y, and Z, and now I'm known as whatever. But the Lord 
who has caused us to be born again, who loves us, who gave himself up for us, says, through Paul, give thanks in all circumstances. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And then he goes into 19, 20, and 21. He says, don't quench the spirit, don't despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. In my humble opinion, those are all to be held together. If there are no verses in the Bible, we would naturally say, oh, spirit, prophecies, and testing all go together. That, that all goes together. When he says don't quench the spirit, don't exhaust him, don't extinguish him, don't put him out. But listen to him. Be obedient to him. And then we have the phrase here in verse 20, don't despise prophecies. This might get a lot of attention. It, it's fairly simple. So this is written early in the New Testament period, First Thessalonians, probably AD 40s. Um, and the, the miracle working of prophecy and tongues and interpretation of tongues and gifts of knowledge and wisdom, still not that long ago, shed abroad on the church at Pentecost. So we have to ask the question, what does he mean by prophecies? What does it mean to not despise prophecies? Well, there is most certainly the idea that there are New Testament prophets. Those who had revelation from the Lord directly. And they spoke what the Lord revealed to them in a, in a foretelling kind of way, predictive kind of way. There is also the prophecy, the prophecies which are less extravagant, okay, and are, are simply what most often occurs with the word prophecy, both in New and Old Testament, is, is just to simply proclaim God's word. And as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 14, these prophecies are for the edification of the church. Therefore, the building up of the church and the, and the strengthening of the church. So when Paul tells the Thessalonians, don't quench the spirit, where does, who gives the prophecies? <laughs> the spirit of God. So then we have to say, well, what was going on in Thessalonica? We know that in Corinth, they were up to their neck <laughs> in, in abusing their gifts of prophecy and other miraculous gifts for show and tell. I mean, just simply to show it off. but it's likely you don't have that in Thessalonica. Not the least of which is probably because of the, the hastening with which the Lord came to Thessalonica, converted them, and then Paul writes this letter only months after. Probably not likely, since it's, there's nothing else in 1 Thessalonians or 2nd, that there are prophets in the sense of we're predicting this to happen to you. We're predicting this private thing in your life to happen at some point later on. That, that's, not, that's not what Paul is talking about. Paul here is saying 
the prophecies in which the Spirit is given to build up the church, which goes for the edification of the saints. So he says, don't despise that. On the other hand, but test them. Someone says they have a word from God, test it. It is a serious, serious thing to despise the word of the Lord. It is also a very serious thing to say, I come and I speak in the name of the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Test all things, he says. I think in our, our tradition, reform circles, we, th- we, think, <laughs> we think prophecies are like the boogeyman. Like, I wish the gift of prophecy as biblically defined in the New Testament was around. I, I, I don't think it is. But I wish such miraculous and sp- supernatural gifts were regularly around in all congregations around the world. But whether or not they are, here, here is a relatable thing. Test all things that are supposedly coming from the Lord. Whether that's from me, or your friend, or anyone else. Test all things with Scripture. There are, there are so many silly ways in which prophecy is supposedly manifested today. I'm not going to get into all that stuff. But when Paul says, don't quench the spirit, don't despise prophecies and test everything, he's saying, listen, the Lord is active and working among you, but test all things. Because not all things are from the Lord, even though that they are purported to be. There are charlatans out there. There are ignorant Christians out there who are thinking, I'm speaking the name of the Lord, and they are not. Test all things. These commands, these uh, imperatives that Paul gives here are all going towards peace. They're all going towards building the body of believers up in wholeness so that when Christ comes, we will be kept blameless. Our whole spirit and soul and body will be, will make, be put together, will be sanctified completely, which is another way of saying we'll be glorified. I just want to close with this thought. These might seem like random commands. These might seem like, I don't, Okay, I might see how they connect now, but where is this all going? Why do we have to obey so many commands? Why is Paul just launching this barrage of imperatives and commands with not much of a reason why? Every land has laws. Every country, every world has customs, manners, laws, societal norms. It wasn't that long ago when immigrants could come to the United States of America and coming here out of gratitude from fleeing their hometown, 
they were, they'd be happy to adopt United States laws and norms and cultural idiosyncrasies and customs. To not adopt that would almost say, well, I want to live here, but I want to bring my own world here. And I'm not really that grateful for being here. Otherwise, why would I be here? (laughs) I think that holds a fair analogy with the Christian and why we obey. We obey because it is the right thing to do. We obey because God is glorified in it. We obey because we should take joy in it. We obey because we are being sanctified and it furthers that along. But more importantly than all those things, we obey because we've been brought into Christ's land. Christ has died. He's been raised from the dead. And as we've learned in 1 Thessalonians and just last week, he has begun his new creation. And we don't wait for the new creation to be culminated and fulfilled in the last day to live holy then. But his new creation is present now. What I'm getting at is this. We've been brought into Christ's world, Christ's creation, the customs of his land, the laws of his land are for love. They're for peace. They're for holiness. That's why we would want to do these things. However hard they are, rejoice always. Give thanks in all circumstances. However hard they are, we are brought into Christ's new creation and we adopt his customs. We ourselves are new creations. You are a new creation in Christ. The former things long gone. The new has come. And out of that sense of new birth, new life, resurrection life, spirit-filled life, we would say, thank you for welcoming me into your kingdom, Lord. How can I glorify you with my life? Well, Christian, glorify me in your life by respecting those who labor over you, by tailor-made ministry towards one another, by getting along, and above all, by responding to God appropriately. If he has revealed himself in supernatural, amazing ways, don't be bored. Be in awe. If he has revealed himself and daily given you what you need, when you need it, time and time again, even the PB&Js on a Wednesday afternoon, thank you, Lord, for constantly providing for all of my needs. This is how Christ is building his kingdom. By faithful and obedient Christians who look to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to to culminate all this and to fulfill all this so that when we see him, we are actually brought home. And what we do with 
disparities in our obedience now and disobedience, we will do perfectly then. There will be a time when there will be no ounce of sin in your life and you will do what the king commanded you to do in his land with unfettered joy and gratitude. Until then, we do it and it's war, but he will complete it. He is faithful. He will surely bring us home. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for calling us into your Son's kingdom. I ask that all the words spoken would rivet our hearts and be uh, sunk down deep into our hearts. Even the parts that we didn't want to hear that you would persuade us this is right and good and it goes towards peace. It goes towards living at peace with all people and it goes towards being made whole. Glorify yourself in our faithfulness in our unfaithfulness. Glorify yourself in our obedience and our disobedience. But cause us to remember that you are faithful. You will never leave us nor forsake us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You can stand for our song.